All right. Once more, good morning and welcome to Christ Church, a church about lifting lives, elevating Christ, a church for those who aren't here yet. I'm Pastor Andrew, and I'm glad that you're here now joining us uh, on site. Perhaps you're joining us online this morning. Good morning to all of you tuning in. And of course, good morning to all of you worshiping in West as well. It's good to be in worship with you, and it's good to have you as part of Christ Church this morning. We are deep into our Lenten journey as a church. We are coming up on one of the most significant weeks in the entire church calendar. For us as a Christian people, this coming week is one of the most significant weeks in our entire year. It is this annual celebration. We talked about the importance of Lent over these last number of weeks. If you're just coming and joining us for the very first time, or if you're dipping into Christ Church, we're so glad that you're here. We are in the midst of what is called a season, a particular season in the church calendar that we refer to as Lent. It is a historic practice that has been handed down from generation to generations of Christians going way back, where it's the special season of preparation. It's a special season where we invest our time and our energy in, in, in a significant way related to our spirituality, or more specifically, in our, our desire to know and understand who Jesus is. This is a time of the year where Christians really focus our hearts, our minds, and our spirits on our Christian identity and the significance of Christ in our lives. And it all leads to this coming week, where once again we walk the way of the cross, where we revisit the significance of Monday Thursday, which is the institution of communion. For those of you who have been around Christ Church for any amount of time, you know how important this is to us specifically as a church body. Communion is so valuable to us that we quite literally do it at every service, at, 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 in every room, at every opportunity we can. We embrace the gift and the sacrament of communion. It's so very important to us, and it's given to us on Monday, Thursday. So you can come back and be a part of that and hear more about um, uh, the Last Supper and the significance of communion then. And then, of course, Good Friday is this Friday. And this is the moment where we step into and join ourselves again to Jesus' sacrifice and his crucifixion, gruesome crucifixion on the cross. Now, fortunately, the story doesn't end there. Uh, it, it, it actually uh, pinnacles at Easter Sunday and the celebration of the resurrection. You can see why this Lenten season moves us to this, this pinnacle moment where we realize the significance of the resurrection and what that means and what that implies for our lives and for this world and what it reveals to us about God, who God is, what God has been doing, and the promise of resurrection, what God will yet do for us uh, in, in the future. This is a big week, guys. And this is what we've been walking and journeying towards with a special emphasis and a focus on Jesus. Now, to help us more locally do that over these specific weeks, we've been looking at a variety of dinner stories. You guys have been tracking with us these last couple of weeks. Uh, we know that Jesus spent time with real people like us, normal disciples of his day. And in some of the ways in which he would spend time with them is by breaking bread and, and throwing back a few and spending time over the context of a meal. And we've been talking about how meals have a great measure of significance to them in our lives. Meals are a place of relationship. They're a place of conversation. They're a place place of ritual. And the same is true when we look at the biblical stories where Jesus is sharing meals with other people. Significant, meaningful things happen. This morning, 
We're going to be looking at our sixth example of of a meal, learning about and looking at meals and the significance therein. It comes to us out of the Gospel of Luke. A reminder for you, as always, I always like to teach you guys this, just a reminder what a gospel is. And this is also equipping you that as you're out in the conversations with other people, you can tell them exactly what a gospel is when they ask you about the Bible, if that conversation ever happens. A gospel is a firsthand eyewitness account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. First-hand eyewitness account, life, death, resurrection of Jesus. And we have four of them. And the Gospel of Luke is one that we've been spending a lot of time with lately because of how Luke treats meals. Meals are of a particular significance for this author and what it means as he describes Jesus. We're going to be deep into the Gospel of Luke this morning. We're going to be in the 22nd chapter. Gospel is broken up in a variety of chapters. We're going to be deep into it today. And, and at this point in the story, it's right before the, the crucifixion. It's like right now in our church calendar. It's at this point where Jesus is anticipating and looking at what it means to prepare for uh, the Last Supper and Monday Thursday. So this morning, we are going to be less focused on a meal per se as much as meal prep, okay? And anybody who's ever had a meal or been at a meal, anyone who's ever made a meal, knows the significance of meal prep, yes? All the moms and dads are like, yes, uh uh-huh, preach it, you coming now, that's right, meal prep. It's a big deal. And so this morning, we'll be looking at meal prep out of chapter 22, and it's related to a very important meal, a significant meal in Jewish history. Jesus was a Jew. For those of us who ascribe to the Christian faith, we have historical roots in our theology and practice in the Jewish faith. And so we have, to have this need. We, it's important. It's vital for us to understand our Jewish roots and its contribution to our Christian faith. And so we're actually going to be talking a lot about our Jewish roots um, this morning. And, and its particular connection to, to Passover. So here we're going to dive in. Chapter 22, verse 7. You can follow along with me on the screen. Otherwise, you can bring out your apps or your Bible or whatever. Uh, chapter 22, starting at verse 7. It's just a very quirky story. It's a very odd story when you're reading along. It's like, why did the author include this? Why is this significant as you're reading along? And, and this morning, we're going to try to unpack some of that significance. But it's, but it's interesting. It's an odd story. All right, here we go. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, two of his disciples, two of the guys that were traveling with him, spending time with him, learning from him, two of his disciples. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover meal for us that we may eat it. Now, for some of us, if you've been around church, you might have heard that word used before, Passover. Um, if you ever spend time, if you maybe got a Jewish friend or a companion, they may refer to or tell you that they have a particular time of the year where they celebrate what's called a Passover. And this is one of the most significant parts of the Jewish tradition. The Passover tradition is one of the most significant moments in, in Jewish culture and identity. It comes from a, a specific story in the Bible. It comes from the Old Testament or the first half of the Bible. Uh, those of you who have ever watched um, Moses and Charlton Heston and movies and stuff like that, if you've ever seen Prince of Egypt, it all has to do with uh, the, the Passover story. So here's the thumbnail uh, of Passover. Here's just a, a thumbnail. You can read the more full experience in Exodus chapter 12. So what Passover is, is this moment in time in Jewish history 
where the Jewish people were in a terrible situation. Horrible situation. They, they had moved as a family, uh, a growing family, into Egypt. And in Egypt, they had settled and multiplied extensively over the generations. Okay? They didn't have birth control, and so it just went wild. All right? They started overpopulating the indigenous population there. And so the indigenous population, the, the, the Egyptians of the day, saw the rise in the swelling of, of demographic numbers of the Hebrew people. At that time, they referred to as Hebrew. Before Jews were called Jews, they were called Hebrews. And so the Hebrew people grew exponentially in size and scope. And so out of fear of the Hebrew people taking over their own country, the Egyptians decided to uh, establish a class system. And, and Hebrews became a lesser class, and Egyptians became the greater class. And, and the greater class forced the lower class, the Egyptians, into uh, slavery, forced labor. Uh, they, they, they simply made a rule that all Hebrews had to become slaves. And so Hebrew people, God's people, were slaves in Egypt for an extensive number of years, in a great period of time. This is like one of the lowest points in the Jewish history and narrative is when they were being oppressed by Pharaoh and the Egyptian government. And the Hebrew people at that point in time saw such great weight and discouragement, they cried out to God asking for deliverance, asking for a freedom, asking for a, 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 an experience in which they would return to where they had once been uh, further, what would be modern-day Israel today or Palestine today. Uh, they wanted to return there, leaving Egypt, but they were slaves and they were stuck. At this time, God raises up a unique individual. His name is Moses, and he reveals to Moses his presence, his power, and his character. And he begins using Moses to reveal himself to the Hebrew people. And, and he does wonders and miracles, and there are a set of ten things specifically that God does through Moses to help motivate Pharaoh to, to, to change the class system and to let his people go. His famous line, let my people go. Uh, Pharaoh resists letting this free labor economic system uh, uh, and, and really the entire government and the framework for their civilization just upend itself. He resists it, unsurprisingly, and it, it takes a final significant act by God where God says, I am sending my judgment. I'm going to send my judgment on the entirety of Egypt. Anyone in Egypt is going to be subject to my judgment. And then he goes to Moses and he says, Moses, when I send my judgment on people, now, if you stand in God's judgment, this world is broken, and the result of God's judgment is death, okay? The Bible makes that very clear from even earlier on. When you stand in God's judgment, the judgment is death. And so what this means is there's going to be a whole lot of death coming Egypt's way. That's what this means in a nutshell. And, and God says to Moses, Moses, uh, to protect you and protect my people, I want you to tell all my people to take a lamb, a Passover lamb, we just read about that, a Passover lamb, and, and kill it as an offering to me, and then take its blood and smear it over the doorposts of your home. And then when my judgment comes, it will quite literally pass over the homes where blood and sacrifice has already taken place. It will pass over. 
and you will not be judged. You will be free. You will be exempt from the death toll. And the result of this action, Pharaoh is so rocked, the country is so rocked, that he does let the Hebrew people go, and it is shortly followed by the establishment of the Hebrew nation. They flee and escape Egypt. They move back into the desert nomadic wanderings, a period where they wander in the desert for a while. And during that time, God gives them the Ten Commandments and establishes the Jewish nation as a whole. This is, for Jewish people, arguably the most significant moment in Jewish history, this escape from Egypt, this exodus event, Passover. Because in this Passover event, it's more than simply just, just about, about, about people escaping slavery. This is actually something even more significant than that, which is hard to imagine. This has to do with a people in relation to their God, knowing and understanding who their God really is. In Exodus, in this freedom act, the world got an understanding of the very character of God. That's what took place. God revealed himself and moved and interacted with the world. He interceded on behalf of people to bring freedom and deliverance and salvation and restoration and and move people in a new trajectory. And, And in doing that, he revealed who he is, what kind of God God is. The Passover event is is this experience where we see who our God, your God, who he truly is. For the Jewish people, this was so significant learning and understanding that their God is a God of deliverance and hope and restoration that God actually said, look, I want you to remember this because there will be more times where you will be facing difficulties like slavery. There are going to be other moments and times in your life where you're going to have low points, difficult moments, and you need to remember who I am and what kind of God I am. Because you're going to look at your circumstances, you're going to look at your situations and say, my God doesn't care about me. You're going to look at your circumstances, you're going to look at your situation and say that my God isn't loving, my God isn't kind, my God isn't a rescuer. And your circumstances and situations is going to try to tell you who I am instead of having me tell you who I am. And so I want you to do a meal. I want you to have an annual celebration, a meal, where you sit down and you remember who I am and what I've done for you. And in this meal, this Passover meal, I want you to have bitter herbs and drink bitter tea because it reminds you that life stinks sometimes. Life is bitter sometimes. Life is hard sometimes. And I want you to have unleavened bread. That is bread without the yeast in it. Why? Well, because in the Egypt escape from Egypt, in that experience, the people didn't have time for the bread to rise. It was like, bake the bread and boom, we're out of here. Let's move. We got to flee. We got to take the advantage of the opportunity while it's there. We have rescue in front of us. We're going to embrace it. So don't sit around and, and dawdle waiting for the bread to rise. Don't wait to embrace what God is doing. No, no, no. You want to take it fully and embrace all that it is and all that it means. So to remind you of that, At Passover, no yeast. 
unleavened bread. And so this tradition began for Passover, handed down from generation to generation of, of, of Jewish people. And Jesus is a Jew. And so Jesus is now, right before his challenge and the challenge that his disciples are about to face, he is telling them, we need to have a meal to remember who God is. We need to embrace and remind ourselves what kind of God we have. He is fortifying them and strengthening them because, well, it's almost like he knows what's about to happen. The cross. The disciples are about to lose their Lord, their teacher, their friend, their companion, the one that they put all their hope on. He's about to die. And to strengthen them, to fortify them, to bring them some confidence that God is, is, is still God here, knowing the situation in front of them, Jesus does something very clever. He tells them to get ready to celebrate Passover that they might remember and revisit and tether themselves again to God's character. Jesus is reminding them who God is in anticipation of the horrible, terrible reality of the cross out in front of him. But that's not all he does. It's how he does it. Jesus not only draws heavily on this Passover tradition. We're nerding out on our tradition here. This is good stuff, guys. There's a second tradition that Jesus weaves into this, and it is the prophetic tradition. Let me show you. The story with Jesus continues. That he tells, tells these disciples. He says, the disciples asked Jesus, where do you want us to make preparations for it, it being the Passover meal? Jesus says, listen. He said to them, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. And then say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs already furnished. Make preparations for us there. So the disciples went and they found everything as Jesus had told them. And they prepared the Passover meal. They went and saw and experienced it just as Jesus foretold. The author here is doing something very, very clever. This, this Luke guy knows what he's doing as an author as he's writing this gospel. He's drawing upon a second Jewish tradition, the prophetic tradition. The prophetic tradition is the idea that a prophet or prophetess, these would be Jewish men and women, again, in the Old Testament, before the time of Jesus, there's this long tradition. A prophet is usually associated with predicting the future. And that's true, really, in our vernacular as well. If somebody starts talking about prophecy, if you're out there in the workplace, somebody starts talking about you throwing that word around, we get the heebie-jeebies, right? Why? Well, it's because it normally it's like, whoa, what are you talking about? Like, that's future stuff. How does that all work? In the Jewish tradition, a prophet was more than simply a fortune teller, okay? That's not, not what a prophet was. A prophet in the Jewish tradition saw and understood what God was up to and therefore understood 
and got a glimpse of God's intended future. Because they saw the, the, well, the fancy word is sovereignty. You guys know that word choice of sovereignty? The rule, the reign, the, the, the full measure of God as he rules and reigns over the cosmos on that ultimate grand big scale. A prophet or prophetess could see what God was doing and ultimately believe that God was in control. A prophet could see that God was in control on a cosmological level, moving and orchestrating events. And therefore, a prophet could see and understand what God was about to do. That's the prophetic tradition. And here, the author is making an intersection with Jesus and the character of God in Passover with that prophetic tradition, the ability to see and know and believe that God is in control. And he does it in a beautiful, literary way that is in the language and in the narrative. Jesus predicts something will happen. He says, look, this is what's happening. Go and you will find it just like that. Go in and you'll see this guy carrying this jar of water. Follow him to the house. Tell the house the teacher has need of it. And exactly that is what transpires. And it grounds us. It tells the disciples then and even disciples now, oh yeah, Jesus is in control. God is in control. Something critical for us to remember, particularly as we anticipate the cross. And to make sure, the, 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 Luke and the, the author Luke, to make sure that you and I register that tradition, he actually does something earlier in his story to the same effect. It happens on Palm Sunday, which is what we would celebrate today. Palm Sunday, the day Jesus comes into Jerusalem. You see, before Jesus comes into Jerusalem in Luke 19, Jesus sends out two disciples and says, go into the town. You will find a colt there, a donkey, and you're going to find a little donkey. Tell the owners that the teacher has need of it, and they will give it to you. And the Bible says that's exactly what happened. And so here we have these instances where Jesus is exhibiting an understanding on, on, on a super grand scale what God is up to, what God is doing. And with that comes the belief, the knowledge, the understanding of, of, of God being in control on a big and ultimate scale. That is to say, right before his own death, his own cross, what does Jesus do in this silly, small story? He reminds and he prepares his disciples to face the cross by reminding them of God's character, who God is, and the fact that God is ultimately in control. And doing so in the bringing together of these two pieces, Jesus is fortifying his disciples with a measure of confidence 
to help them endure and navigate what is laid out in front of them. Beautifully done on Jesus' part. Now, why does any of this matter? Why should we care? I mean, it sounds really cool. It's fun to nerd out, like, great teaching, woohoo! But why, as it relates to you and me, the disciples of today? Well, it's because you will also face difficulties, challenges. You will face slavery in Egypt. You will face a cross and crucifixion. You, you will have moments in your life that are low points where you need to be reminded that God loves you and he cares about you. Your God is working in this world on an ultimate grand scale. He is ultimately in control and, and, and he is moving the events of this world and the realities of this world for your benefit, for your good, because of his love for you. And he makes that love known in the person of Jesus. You see, these stories have real implications for us because, because, because there are going to be situations where you need to be reminded that God loves you. This last week, I had the privilege of sitting with one of my sisters in faith, and she's in the hospital right now. And I just spent time reading some of this text. And I can tell you the confidence that I had as I sat there with her and we prayed together. I knew that our God, her God, loved her because I knew God's character. And I knew that even as she faced this situation, even as she was facing all the challenges and the tests and the nurses and the doctors, that I knew that regardless of whatever the future held, God is in control. And he will work for her good. And therefore, we could take confidence and we could laugh and tell stories and have a peace in a hospital room. Not that long ago, I spent time on a, uh, the phone with a friend and we were talking about some of the world events that was going on. And we both conveyed concern over the reality of international affairs and war and violence and some of these things. And the reality of, of, of nuclear came up. And what was so wonderful was, was that for both of us, where we ended the conversation, where we had to move back to in the conversation, was, was where we ended the conversation saying, look, but we, we, we may have concerns, valid concerns. We may have valid fears. We have questions and confusion, and, and we should pay attention to these things. And yet, we know who our God is. We know his goodness. We know his love. And we take hold of the belief that he is ultimately in control, working for our good and the good of this world. And that means that I can face the day and face the news in a different kind of way. Maybe it's more mundane for you. Maybe it's just getting through the day. Maybe it's the tiredness. Maybe it's a poopy diaper. That's what it's in my house. Some days I feel overwhelmed. You know what I'm talking about? Just as a parent. That can feel like a cross sometimes. I don't know any kids in here. I'm not sure, but it's true. And yet in those moments, when we are at our limits, discouraged, tested, tried, difficulty comes our way. 
In those moments, we have the gift of Jesus Christ. Giving to his disciples today the reminder of God's character, your God's character. Your God is about restoration. He's about salvation and freedom. We have the gift of Jesus reminding us through this text, through this word, that he's ultimately in control, even in the moments where you feel so out of control. Your God is at work, and he is good. And he most notably proves this in the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that which we celebrate this week. My prayer and my invitation to you is that you would take confidence in this message and also that you would walk this week the way of the cross and arrive at Easter morning where we see the fullness of God's deliverance and salvation made real, given and promised to you in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'll be excited to sing with you on Sunday morning. For the moment, let us walk the way of the cross. Amen, good? Please close in prayer with me. Let's pray together. Jesus, this morning we worship you and praise you and thank you for who you are, what you have done, are doing, and what you have promised yet to do. We come before you in humility, acknowledging that for many of us we are in moments of difficulty and challenge. Perhaps we know someone who is facing slavery in Egypt right now. There are those in our midst who need deliverance, Lord. Each of us, even on a daily basis, we need deliverance from the brokenness, the pain, and the violence of our world that so readily and so consistently seems overwhelming. Lord, we come to our own end and, and realize our own finitude, and we, we, we need you. And here in the scriptures, we are reminded. We are brought back and we are joined again to your deliverance your character of rescue, of intervention. Thank you not only for interceding on behalf of the Israelite and the Jewish, the Hebrew people so long ago at Passover, but that also in the person of Jesus, there would be a definitive moment in time in history where you would, you would intercede not just on behalf of Jewish people, but on behalf of all people throughout all of time to bring deliverance and freedom and salvation. You did this because you are ultimately in control, working and leading us, your people, to your preferred future. Grant us the confidence and the hope that we need to endure the struggles of today in light of the promise of tomorrow and the resurrection, in light of who you are and what you are doing. Humbly, we receive your goodness and your word this morning and the confidence and the grace that comes with it. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.